for Tuesday, April 27th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, federal officials have lifted a pause on the COVID-19 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. They say compared to the risks of coronavirus infection, the chance of severe blood clots is small. The risks are still very rare. It's not one in a million, which is what we have been kind of assuming. It's more like two in a million. Selena Simmons-Duffin, health policy reporter for NPR, joins me to look at the J&J pause and what it could mean for the U.S. vaccine effort going forward. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. COVID-19 vaccines from Johnson & Johnson are going into arms across the country again. Last week, an advisory panel to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention met and recommended a pause on the shot be lifted, despite reports of rare but serious blood clots. Selena Simmons-Duffin, health policy reporter for NPR, has been watching the J&J pause and joins me now to discuss what it could mean for the U.S. vaccination effort going forward. Selena, thanks for talking with me. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I want to start by just kind of going back to the beginning of this whole ordeal when earlier this month, federal officials announced that they were recommending a pause in the administration of the COVID-19 vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. Take us back there. What happened that led federal regulators to call for this pause? Everybody found out about this decision at exactly the same time. What federal regulators said was, hey, we've seen six cases of a rare combination of blood clots, the serious blood clot that are mostly showing up in the brain, and low blood platelets. And that's pretty unusual. The treatment of blood clots normally involves a drug called heparin, which causes low blood platelets. And so part of the pause and the ensuing media attention was to say, If there's a history of recent vaccination with Johnson & Johnson, we want to be not treating the blood clots that might show up in your ER or at your doctor's office with the normal course of treatment. And also, you know, regulators said, we want to look at this. We want to look really closely and figure out who this is affecting, whether there are more cases out there once we kind of put out this bat signal and say, this is something we're paying attention to now. And 
figure out whether it makes sense, given a careful risk-benefit analysis, to resume giving this vaccine. And part of the calculation, too, was that here in the U.S., there seems to be plentiful supply of the mRNA vaccines made by Moderna and Pfizer. So it's not exactly the same situation as you have in some other countries where it's this vaccine that has this rare but serious side effect or bust. That kind of sets the stage for where things were that Tuesday when we all woke up to this somewhat surprising, unusual, and drastic decision. And so, Selena, do we know how and why this came to federal regulators' attention? Were they on the lookout for issues with this vaccine in particular? That's a good question. I have heard that could be because this is the same vaccine technology that's used in the AstraZeneca vaccine. And obviously, we've heard a lot about the blood clot side effect that's shown up with that vaccine overseas. It's not being used in the U.S. It's not authorized here, but it is a vaccine that uses an adenovirus. It uses this kind of modified cold virus to give you the immune response that protects you against COVID. There was, I think, maybe particular attention to the chance that this kind of similar vaccine might be causing a similar side effect. And there was some speculation that that's why people monitoring vaccine safety saw this come up in such a tiny, tiny group of people. You know, out of 7 million shots, they had six cases that they knew about when the call was made to put a pause on this. And so what federal regulators were saying when they made the decision to pause this, um, or rather sent out that recommendation to state and local officials that they should cease their campaigns, vaccine campaigns that they had planned with this vaccine and swap something else in or reschedule appointments. They said, you know, we're looking at everything that we possibly could find that could possibly cause a safety issue and we're giving it our full attention. And it was after that pause we saw here in Georgia and across the country, states follow that guidance from federal regulators and stopped administering the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Shortly after that, we had the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, this kind of immunization advisory panel to the CDC. They met that same week that this pause was recommended to review what was going on. Uh, what happened at that meeting? Right. Um, it was the day after, actually. The day after the pause was announced, ACIP met. It was a five-hour meeting. The first part of it was a kind of review of what was known as current cases, how they presented. And I should say that the members of this panel are mostly physicians with an expertise in vaccination. Many of them have a pediatric focus, and so many vaccinations are given in the early years of life. And they also heard from Johnson & Johnson. Um, Johnson & Johnson, the, the maker of this vaccine, gave a presentation. They actually had a few cases that didn't show up in the federal database, so they were sharing information about the cases they knew about. But at the end of the meeting, it was clear that there wasn't really a clear consensus about what to do next. And even though there was a vote on the agenda, they did not take a vote at that time. I think that in the end, it kind of seemed like they didn't even have enough information to say the pause should continue definitively. They did agree to meet again in 10 days. I think that a couple days after that, they put the date on the calendar as the following Friday and just said, we need to see what other cases come up 
um, now that we have put this call out there to say, you know, providers, hospitals, anybody who may have seen something like this, we want to hear from you. We want to do an investigation. We want to see how many cases there are out there. And there was some pushback. I mean, Nirav Shah, the head of the main CDC, was one of the people, he's a, a liaison to ACIP, and he also heads the Association for State and Territorial Health Officials. And he said, please don't do this. We really need this vaccine. It's one shot. It doesn't require the cold storage and like difficult storage and handling requirements like these other vaccines do. We need it. Please don't do nothing, which is in essence saying we're not sure because that could undermine vaccine confidence. It was testy. It was, there was, a, it was a much more lively debate than we usually see in these ACIP meetings. I'm wondering if we have any sense of what the impact was on this kind of non-decision in the next week while ASIP was waiting for more information to come in. I mean, states, I imagine, all over the country were, were scrambling to deal with having one fewer tool in their vaccine toolkit. Yeah, I was paying close attention in the following days to hear about, you know, whether people who are running vaccine clinics with this shot um, were really scrambling, whether people who had appointments scheduled were back to square one. Because at the time, even though it's starting to change already and vaccine appointments are starting to be easier to come by, at the time it was still the kind of situation where you might have to wait weeks and weeks for an appointment. It, it really felt like you've won the lottery when you've scored one. And the idea that after a long wait, you might have to go back to square one and start refreshing the pharmacy appointment website again could be really demoralizing for people. It could even, the real fear was, it could make people not only feel not confident about taking this vaccine, but potentially not willing to go for another appointment if that's what needed to happen. But I have to say that the kind of worst case scenarios that I was watching for didn't seem to come to pass. It went much more smoothly than I was expecting. A lot of states, including New York uh, State, announced, come to your appointment still. We're swapping in other vaccine. We're going to make it happen. Just show up. I did see a couple, uh, like a clinic uh, that was doing some student vaccinations in Iowa, canceled and said, good luck <laughs> to the people who had appointments, which is not great. But in, in terms of your question of, you know, where that put the vaccine effort, I think that it's possible some of the slowdown that we have seen and that we're starting to report on in terms of the pace of vaccinations could be attributable to the fact that there was this pause. And some health officials who held a briefing last week did say that the dip that they were seeing in their states was attributable to that pause. So it's really hard to quantify because there was such a patchwork of reactions and responses to the pause. And I think that we'll get more clarity in this week, now that the pause has ended, to see whether that was a blip or whether we're really on a downward trajectory in terms of the vaccine campaign. I think, Selena, that gets us very nicely to uh, what happened last week when ACIP reconvened to consider the fate of the J&J &J vaccine. I imagine this was another marathon meeting where they went over lots of different uh, kind of aspects of their decision whether or not to lift this pause. Walk me through some of the highlights, things that really stuck out to you. Okay, so the big thing that they had at the second meeting was way more information and more cases. 
So at the second meeting, instead of six cases, there were 15. Um, instead of one death, there were three deaths. And they named this apparent side effect as thrombosis with thrombocytopedia syndrome, or TTS. It was a much more organized meeting. There was way more information. And I think the committee felt much more confident in making the determination that yes, it is time to restart the use of this vaccine. The risks are still very rare. It's not one in a million, which is what we had been kind of assuming. It's more like two in a million, still very rare. And of course, we're seeing cases and deaths still really bad in this country. So the risk of COVID and the benefits of the flexibility of this vaccine really make it a key tool. And I think ACIP had a lot more confidence after this second meeting with more presentations from Johnson & Johnson and from federal health officials um, and more information from these more cases to be able to make that determination and hold a vote. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Selena Simmons-Duffin, health policy reporter for NPR, about the pause on Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine that was recently lifted. Were there any caveats with this recommendation from ACIP? Say, is there going to be a warning that providers have to give people who get the J&J vaccine about the potential for this side effect? Well, yes, they decided that they would include a warning with the, you know, you know, that handout that you get when you get a vaccine. Even if you're at the pediatrician, you get handed this fact sheet. Information about this side effect would be included in that it would be included as a kind of warning label on this vaccine. But what they did not do is say, if you are a woman or if you are in a certain age range, all of these cases that they've discovered so far were in women, and most of them were in the mid to late 30s in terms of age. What they didn't do is say that if you're in any of those demographic groups, you are not uh, advised to get this vaccine. Everyone over the age of 18 is still advised to get this vaccine as long as they're aware that this is a potential rare side effect. And I think that that was kind of not surprising. It was the determination of the European Medicines Agency that reviewed these same cases or a subset of these cases earlier in the week. Similarly, what they decided was there needs to be awareness in terms of the public, in terms of providers, that this is a rare potential side effect, but we're not gonna put limits on who has access to these vaccines. And that stands in contrast to how many countries have managed the risk of blood clots with the AstraZeneca vaccine. There are age limitations of the use of that vaccine in many countries. But I think that in this case, there just wasn't enough data to be able to really target. These are the, the groups that are vulnerable and these are the groups that are not. We've now been through this period of two weeks or so when Federal regulators have paused and then lifted a pause on the J&J vaccine. Moving forward, what kind of impact is this going to have, say, on the U.S.'s vaccine effort? You mentioned early on that J&J has not been a substantial part of that when compared to the mRNA vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer. That's true. I mean, it has been about 5% of the vaccine effort so far, including the week before the pause was announced. It, it had been 5% of the vaccine doses that were distributed. I mean, obviously that's tiny, tiny, tiny. But now we're moving into 
this new phase of the vaccine campaign. The people who were willing to go through the hassle of trying to find an appointment and go in and drive to the drive-through or wait in line at the mass vaccine site, those people have pretty much gotten their vaccine first doses anyway, or gotten their appointments. They're kind of taken care of. And the populations that are really needed in order for the country to get to the point where we have real coverage in terms of at a population level, in terms of immunity, are the people who might not be willing to do that, to take those steps, to make those appointments, to know their schedules to the point that they can say next Thursday, I know I can be free for an hour and a half in the middle of the day. So I think that it's possible, assuming that the production issues that Johnson & Johnson has struggled with get sorted, and you know, assuming that the vaccine confidence is there and people are still willing to get this vaccine after this pause, which sometimes people don't read past the headline and they just feel nervous and they, they stop there. Um, assuming all of that is true, it could be that this vaccine becomes more and more a key part of the vaccine campaign because you can set it up in the parking lot outside of the church service, because you can spend one day going in and targeting communities that might be passing through. And when presented with this opportunity, hey, hello, right now, we are here. Do you want to get your shot? Are willing to say yes, but don't want to go through the rest of the hassle of driving to someplace special and making that time. On that point of skepticism about the vaccine, vaccine hesitancy, reluctance, whatever you want to call it, how did federal officials address that? Because I, I would have to think that making such a public declaration that we're going to not recommend people take this vaccine for a short period of time while we review these very serious incidents where multiple people have died, that that has to undermine confidence in this shot. Yes. The way that federal officials handled it was to spin it as they're being super, 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 super careful. <laughs> you should be extra confident in these vaccines because you know that at the slightest hint of something that could be problematic to somebody's health, they took the drastic step of making a pause. And I should say that the White House claims they found out about this pause along with everyone else. All they knew the night before was that an announcement was coming. They didn't know the details. And so I think part of the reason why they're emphasizing that is to say, there are no political calculations here. Maybe this kind of goes counter to the message that the Biden administration has been spreading, which is we're full steam ahead. Sometimes following the science, which is, you know, the big project of the Biden administration and taking over the COVID pandemic response is politically inconvenient. And I think this is one of those cases. So that was the spin from the kind of political side is, we're taking this so seriously. We are going along with our scientists, even when it doesn't look amazing. That should increase confidence. I don't know if it will. And I have to say that the polling about vaccine confidence um, in the wake of this announcement, a little sparse. It was such a kind of brief moment in time. I think it's really hard to distill what impact it had and what impact it will have, whether people after the unpausing say, hey, I feel even better now that I know this has been looked into or whether it's a, the, oh, that doesn't sound good. What is that about? 
doesn't get resolved with the announcement that this is going to be unpaused. It's just so hard to pinpoint that. Um, and I, as I said, I think that watching what happens in terms of the pace of vaccination in the next couple of weeks, I think will give us way more information about how this actually made an impact on the campaign or not. What I have thought about is kind of the alternative reality here that could have happened. Federal regulators find out about these adverse events, but somehow don't make this public and this say comes out down the road that they were aware of these very serious side effects. It seems like not being very public and transparent in the way that they have been could have potentially even been more harmful down the road. I agree. I was having the same thought that if as state and local health officials had been complaining, they had gotten that heads up before the public did, a reporter would have gotten it and leaked it. And then that's how it would have come out. And it would have had a very different tenor than everybody from local health officials to the White House heard about this at the same time. So yeah, I think that it was probably a difficult call for FDA and CDC, but I think that this transparency first approach does have its benefits. And I think that being able to control the message in the way that they have um, is one of those benefits. So what are the implications, do you think, of this pause going forward, just when it comes to kind of setting a standard for when the FDA and CDC recommend that things come to a halt with one of these vaccines? Has a bar been set kind of low here for them to actually say this is something we need to stop while we look into it? Because I can imagine there's a possibility that we could find out more about potential adverse effects from any of these vaccines in, in the future. It's possible. I think that's a, that's a fair point. But I would say one of the things that came out of all of these public meetings, and I should say the ACAP meetings that I watched last week and the week before were public meetings. That's like an incredible amount of transparency. Anybody who wanted to, not just health reporters, but anybody who wanted to see how Johnson & Johnson and federal health officials and members of this advisory committee were looking at this information were able to do that in real time. One of the things that came out of all those meetings is that there have been no serious uh, adverse events reported for either of the mRNA vaccines that have been the bulk of the vaccine campaign and have been used for longer than the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. Nothing. I mean, they were like, they're not investigating any sign of anything. And, you know, these were the ones that were greenlit way back in the winter and have been orders of magnitude relied upon more than the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the campaign so far. So it could be, yes, that they're setting a precedent that, you know, they have to pause. There was some discussion of was the pause necessary? And it seemed like people thought, yes, you know, it gave us a chance to kind of catch our breath, to really take our time in finding out what's going on without worrying that these cases were accumulating while we were doing that. Um, but Thankfully, the ones that have been the real workhorses in the campaign so far are not showing any particular serious adverse events um, that are being investigated right now. So hopefully that stays true and we don't have to have any other pauses going forward. I often get asked my kind of personal opinions as a health reporter who, you know, covers things like this. If you were offered the J&J &J shot, would you take it? That's a really good question. 
I feel like it's hard to make that decision in a vacuum. I've already gotten my first Pfizer shot. I'm in the group of people who's who are in between and kind of holding my breath um, until I get my second one next week. Because I am in the population of people, as, as a woman, I'm 34, I think I'd probably skip it because I'm risk averse and because there seem to be opportunities to get vaccinated with these other vaccines. If I were not in that demographic, I think I would go for it. I think that the chance to be fully vaccinated two weeks out from one shot is is pretty significant. So I can really see the advantages of this vaccine um, and the advantages of not, you know, of, of being able to run into people and kind of get that vaccine on the books without having to schedule a time to run into them again at the scheduled time in the future. So yes, uh, it's kind of, it's like a little bit hard to really answer that question since I, I'm in the demographic of concern kind of, and since I've already gotten the one of dose of the other vaccine, but I actually have asked that question of some of the experts that I talked to, including, you know, physicians and public health officials, and they've all been really impressed, not only with the simplicity of this vaccine, but also with the really impressive clinical trial data from the vaccine. What I understand, because I'm not an expert at looking at clinical trial data, but they did a masterful job in designing their trial and producing convincing results. So I, I think that it's something I would recommend to people to get, especially if for whatever reason, one shot is preferred. Selena Simmons-Duffin is a health policy reporter for NPR. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's also where you can leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.